0: Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate.
1: So I have been away from the retreat, actually, for about 24 hours, maybe even 26 hours, and it's really good to be back here. And I was thinking on my way back how some of you would probably give anything to have traded places with me. (laughs) You know, I could stop and get a snack, I could get junk food, I could get coffee, whatever, you know... um, fantasy you might have about how great it is out there um, after being here, but let me tell you, there is nothing, nothing uh, out there that is better than being right here, and um, I've been there, so I can tell you for sure. (laughs) I was in the retreat, and I left the retreat, and I came back. And um, once uh, this is going to be a talk about mindfulness, and a few years ago, I had a student. it was her first retreat, and she was practicing mindfulness, but she wasn't getting too much traction in her practice. you know it, it really wasn't connecting so much for her and she was pretty restless and she wasn't used to being away from her husband and so at night she was extremely homesick for him and she was this was her first retreat and it was her first time in sort of this culture of meditation retreat too so the food was very different for her and everything and we would have our interviews and she was reporting these struggles and And I remember giving her this advice and try that and, you know, move your practice this way. And then she came back for an interview and she was great. She had connected with her practice. Things were going very smoothly. It was toward the end of the retreat. And, of course, I had a moment of thinking, you know... This is the rewarding thing about teaching, right? You know, somebody really starts to blossom and get the hang of it, and you feel quite good about that. And I asked her what had happened and what had made the difference, and she said, well, actually, I went to town. (laughs) I got a cup of coffee, and um, I picked up a few things I needed at the drugstore, And I read the newspaper, and she said, and then I came back to the retreat, and I was able to meditate. I was able to focus. Now, this is really not a story about what you should do. It's it's an unusual story. Um, It doesn't usually happen that way. Uh, Usually when we leave a retreat, it's pretty difficult when we come back and we feel all the reverberations. But... um, Tonight I want to talk with you just a little bit about mindfulness and what it is that we're doing here and what does that actually mean. We say it all the time, but what does it mean? And um, the definition of mindfulness is really being present with the object of attention, whatever that might be, just really being with it, being very present and... I guess this talk, in a way, is a kind of ode to mindfulness. I really love mindfulness because when we're fully present with the object of our attention, there are also so many qualities of matta, of a certain kind of um, caring and connection and uh, warmth. Uh, Because whether you're just, this is your first retreat ever, it's certainly for many of you your first time in this retreat, whether you're still quite restless or whether you're beginning to settle in, whatever's happening, what's most important is just to relax and allow yourself to be present with experience as it is, as you are, however it is. And what could really be more kind? and more generous than this kind of approach. So there's the awareness of just what's happening, the noticing of that, the knowing of that, combined with this generous, kind, allowing attitude. Because mindfulness isn't trying to actually fix anything, add anything on, take anything away. It's a kind of steadfast or steadiness um, of presence moment by moment by moment. And one definition I read was, well, mindfulness is the absence of confusion. And then I thought, well, if I say that, then everybody will think that rules me out because I get confused. But this, again, is why I love mindfulness, because The minute we are mindful, aware of being confused, we're not entirely confused anymore. There's a corner of awareness that can hold that experience and just create a little bit of space between the skull and the brain so that the absence of confusion really means the absence of being totally lost in that confusion. This is a New Yorker cartoon that I also really love about mindfulness. And I outlined it so you could maybe see that what the picture is, is um, it's a picture of two snails talking to each other. And you might have seen it. And um, one snail is saying to the other, and then up here there's a snail-like object. And one snail is saying to the other, I don't care if she is a tape dispenser. (laughs) I love her. (laughs) So mindfulness helps us recognize what's actually there. Is it a beautiful female snail? Or is it a tape dispenser? You know, we all have our version of what we like to see and what we long to see. And the uh, coloration that we apply to the perceptions that we have often determines what we do see. And with mindfulness, we are able to see, okay, maybe it isn't what I thought it is. Maybe I love it anyway but maybe I have a choice. There's this element of choice because we're informed, because we know what we're looking at. Um, I want to share with you an experience that I had with a teacher who embodied qualities of both mindfulness and metta, and then how these qualities can be transmitted, and then um, just some ways to Some practical suggestions for strengthening your meditation and your mindfulness with your breath, with your walking, um, with everything that you're doing here. So the story is actually a story of a teacher who... um, Well, it started when I was at a concert, um, and this was in Hawaii, and it was my first time visiting a friend who lived on Kauai, and my first time there... And I was just there for about five days, and this was um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, I was there for a workshop conference. But, uh, and I said, well, there everybody surfs, and very much like where I live in Southern California, unlike where I spent most of my life in Boston, uh, most people surf. And I said, well, you know, I'm over 60, I mean, I'm too old to surf, I'm not going to learn how to surf. And... Somebody at the table, the son of a friend of mine, said, oh, you're not too old to surf. You're going to learn to surf. And he was this big, hulking surfer dude. And um, I could see that he meant it. And it it didn't actually make me happy. Um, (laughs) I wasn't really that eager to learn how to surf, to tell you the truth, but he gave up his own surfing time after work the next day, and we were to meet at this certain place, and my friend was all excited because she's a surfer, and there wasn't really a way out of it, it didn't seem, so I went there, and um, there he was with this gigantic surfboard. I mean, it probably wasn't, but it looked you know, practically up to the ceiling from here, and He showed me on the beach what to do. You bend your knees and you crouch sideways and then you sort of spring up and it was pretty easy to do on the sand. Um, (laughs) And then this was the kind of killer moment. They said well um, because of course you practice mindfulness and you're a Dharma teacher this probably won't be too hard for you. And then they all kind of lined up on the beach to watch. And so Adam, uh, we went out and um, we went to a kind of sandbar pretty where the waves, um, were. they looked big to me, but they weren't really big. So what he did was um, I would get on the surfboard and then when a wave would come, he would also push so that there would be enough momentum for the board to go really fast. And I remembered all the things I was supposed to do and I was really hanging on to the board. And so the wave came and he did it. And um, I was hanging on so tight. I was concentrating so much on the first thing that all the rest went out of my mind, and the board just went completely, it sunk. It went completely down into the water instead of skimming over the top. And and I felt, you know, they're on the beach, and they're watching, and um, I really turned around just feeling kind of bad, and I said, I didn't really say anything. I just looked at him, and he had... Both thumbs up like this. And he and he was smiling. And I said, well, Adam, it sunk. And he said, Oh, that's just normal. It always pearls, it always does that. And we tried again and we tried again. And actually, I finally did get up, and I was so excited about being up that I forgot that you're supposed to lean forward when you get up, and so I just stood there so happy, and of course, you know, fell off right away, but, but the part um, that feels very relevant to what we're doing here is that attempt to sort of catch the moment and catch the experience you're having before it's over, you know, catch it and be able to ride it, to be with it. And also, if any of you came to me and said to me something like, um, well, you know, I brought my attention to the present moment, but then these thoughts came and completely distracted me and I just got lost, completely forgot. Um, I would say what Adam said, you know, great. That's how it happens. That's how it always happens. And with a little bit of mindfulness and a little bit of friendliness and warmth and metta for ourselves, um, we can actually have the sense of possibility that it's possible to get up and stand up um, and connect with uh, the moment, the footsteps, being with, staying with. The movement, the flow of the breath, the sensations in the body, the sounds that we're hearing, this particular breath, this particular step, this particular moment of eternity revealing all kinds of truths of life. At a talk that Dalai Lama gave some years ago, a young man said, I have a very hard time meditating. I keep thinking that I'm not really worthy of happiness, that I don't really deserve it. And apparently, the Dalai Lama leaned forward and in an uncharacteristically strong voice said, it was like a kind of correcting voice, said, you are wrong. Every being is a beautiful expression of nature. How much more so a being with a precious human birth one with a capacity for wisdom and compassion. So I hope that you are having some compassion for the distracting thoughts, the slipping off the moment, the slipping away from now that happens over and over and over again as we sit. And especially in these first In these first days, um, these first days of retreat, this is a quote from um, the the Underachiever's Guide to Enlightenment. (laughs) And this little chapter is called The 4% Value-Added Principle. It's now an established scientific fact that human beings are, genetically speaking, 96% identical to chimpanzees. How does that make you feel? Think of it. The most successful individuals in the world, as well as the most hopelessly underaccomplished ones, are, biologically speaking, all pretty close to chimps. If anything puts the lie to the old saw about giving 110%, this is it. So this is actually a story about relaxing as we try in our practice. In fact, biologically speaking, even bacteria are extremely successful. And they don't seem to work that hard at it. (laughs) This point may be a case of science misapplied, but it seems to fit. Being alive at all is by far your greatest achievement. And as we are sitting and walking and staying close to the body during these hours of practice that you've been having and that I'm so happy to return to, to appreciate the simple fact of being alive, to appreciate the simple beingness. Um, In so many ways, this is really enough. From David White, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, This sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. There's something so counterintuitive about mindfulness that we're turning toward experiences that again and again we've turned away from before coming to this practice and that by turning toward the experience we can begin to recognize it for what it is. When we're small there are experiences that are really too big to handle and they overwhelm our capacity for attention and as kids we develop strategies for Managing that which actually overwhelms our capacity for attention. And you can see kids, um, my grandson, his strategy is when something upsetting happens or he sees something scary, he immediately starts jumping up and down really fast and saying, look at this, look at this, look at this, and he does a trick. And he just does a trick. And he'll do it over and over, and he'll say, look, 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 look. In other words, don't feel what you're feeling. If it's sadness, don't be upset. Look at this trick. And um, this works really well because he's four years old. If he were to develop no new strategies for dealing with difficult things when they arise or painful emotions, uh, by the time he would be 34... This strategy, or 44 or 54, might not work quite so well. And yet, this is something we do. We carry forward these strategies that are based on either avoiding or pushing away painful experience. And the beauty of our mindfulness practice is that it can go anywhere. That the quality of our attention when we're mindful... It really doesn't depend on the content of the experience. In fact, the content of the experience that we're having, whether it's overwhelming, underwhelming, exciting, boring, happy, sad, difficult, easy, whatever the emotional flavor or the actual content of the experience that we're having is, It's the contents of our waking up in that moment. It's the contents of our awakening. Our awakening doesn't happen anywhere else but here. Now. In this moment of life. Because there really is no other moment of life. I mean, we imagine there is. But there actually isn't. And so there's a freedom to begin to learn to meet our experience with the understanding that whatever it is, um, is a vehicle. It doesn't have the meaning it would usually have for us. Here, it's all grist for the awakening mill. It's all a vehicle for just seeing more and more clearly being able to see. And that day, Adam really demonstrated his mindfulness and metta together. Mindfulness functioning with this kind allowing of a calm parent, a calm caregiver, watchful, steady, and just knowing the right distance to stay, not getting so backed off from experience that it's too far away and disconnected and we essentially abandon ourselves. And not getting lost, not getting lost in it either. But knowing, knowing just what's here, just what's now. Being meticulous and precise (laughs) Bending our knees, leaning forward, moving with the water. And actually here, it's the opposite of leaning forward. Here, it's actually taking a step back. As you're sitting here right now, just just step back for a moment. Even just moving your body a quarter of an inch back. And as you do that, and just take one breath from this just slightly back, This is called the backward step in Zen practice. Just feel that shift into receptivity. Not tilting toward the next experience and waiting for it, but being attentive. And this kind of attentiveness and receptivity is actually a form of loving attention. When we talk about being mindful of the object of attention, we can think of I here being mindful of something over here. And there's a kind of separation there. And that separation is the space of observation, of, um, of knowing what's happening, but it doesn't have to be so dualistic. When we're really mindful and really close and present and with the experience we're having, it's more like this. Um, take the fingers of one hand and put them on the back of your other hand, just gently touching that hand. And closing your eyes if you want to, but it's not necessary. Just for a moment touch that hand. And then ask yourself, which hand is feeling this? Which hand is feeling this? Where is the sensation located? And you can let go, but this <laughs> this sense of of connection, of contact, uh, of getting so close to experience that we really don't think. Well, there's the eye over here, and the rug over there, and then there's the seeing. It's just happening. It's just the truth happening. This truth happening uh, place of mindfulness. I said that I would um, offer you a practical suggestion of how to uh, bring yourself back and become more mindful when you're sitting and walking in your life here. And uh, this, this is a suggestion that comes from the Zen tradition, and it comes in the form of a kind of koan, but I found it so helpful in my practice, and I want to share it with you. It's the story of a Zen master named Zui Gan, And he lived in a monastery, and just as you're spending your days practicing awareness here, that's what he did, but it was his whole life. I mean, if you think this is a challenging practice to do in one day, imagine spending your whole life doing it. Well, he had decided to offer his whole life to this. And he was living in the monastery. And this was his practice. He would call out to himself as he was working in the garden or doing his whatever work, meditation, job he was involved in, or maybe walking someplace or sweeping, he would call out to himself. He would just call to himself and say, Sweek on," and you can call to yourself, Trudy. And then he would answer himself, and he would say, Yes, yes. And then he would ask himself a question, and he would say, Are you here? He would just ask himself, are you here? Trudy, are you here? Earth to Trudy, are you here? You can ask yourself this question. Yes, I'm here. I don't feel as fully here, maybe, as if I'd been here all day. But I'm here. I'm really here. And then he gave himself a piece of advice. He said, do not be deceived by others. And that's, of course, the mysterious part. What did he mean by that? Don't be deceived by others. Well, you can find your own meaning for this. I'll give you one or two so you don't feel like... um, It's frustrating or you're um, going away empty-handed. But you can ask yourself this question. Call to yourself just in the course of going around and answer yourself. And don't abandon yourself. Stay with yourself and ask yourself, am I here? And what is the quality of my here-ness? You know, it's actually easier to be here in the midst of difficult or painful experience than easy experience. Um, there's something that grabs our attention with that. And when he said, do not be deceived by others, I think he was talking about that way that we have of making an object of experience or making an object of ourselves and um, separating somehow from experience and imagining that it's all out there. Reality is out there somewhere. Um, But it's not, here we don't make such a difference between in here and out there. I was sitting once with my Zen teacher, Coben Chino, and he liked to go, this was um, in Taos, New Mexico, where he lived, and he liked to climb up El Salto, the mountain um, where he was living, and just make a little fire and sit under a pine tree and... um, If he had money, he would buy a pack of cigarettes. If he didn't, he would roll a cigarette and uh, smoke a cigarette by the fire. And I was there with him one day. And the fire he made, um, there were lots of pine cones, and it was really smoking, very smoky. And then he lit a cigarette. Again, this is not a practice that I'm recommending to you, like going to town. Um, But he took a deep drag on the cigarette. And he said, inside and outside, become one. (laughs) This is from Wendell Berry. It's called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we've come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we've come to our real journey. The mind that's not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So here too, he's talking about um, not being deceived by what we imagine things to be, by what we might think is our confusion, or are being far away from the Dharma, or being no good at this, or whatever kinds of thoughts and stories uh, might be from time to time tormenting you with (laughs) doubts. And Wes is going to talk more about this tomorrow night, but that that sense of really not knowing, not being so sure anymore why you came to the retreat, what you're doing here, what the practice is, that that moment of really acknowledging that it's maybe not what you thought it would be, whatever it is, um, that we've come to our real journey. And this sense of Jack talked last night about the one who knows, connecting with our true nature that deeply knows, intuitively knows. And in some ways, the one who knows is the same one as the one who doesn't know and who's willing to not know, experience, and have a little bit of patience with that, with that not knowing. And... My first teacher was a Korean Zen master, and that was his teaching to us. He would engage us in some kind of um, Dharma exchange, and then he would ask us a question that was completely unanswerable, And no matter how well you held your own, and I really watched Jack engage with him in those early days, and he would hold his own for a long time. But eventually, Sansanim would find some question that you couldn't answer, and then he would be so thrilled. Your mind would just stop, and he would be thrilled. And he would say, Yes, that's it. That mind. The mind that doesn't know. Just keep that mind. Only don't know. Only go straight 10,000 years with that mind. So the one who knows, the one who doesn't know, it's the same teaching that outside our door, outside the door of our mind house, this house of our Opinions and thoughts and cherished beliefs about ourselves and everything else. Outside, if we're willing to step outside of our mind house into this vast open desert, there's a land of stillness and light. Spring comes and the desert flowers bloom all by themselves, don't they? We don't have to make it happen. Spring comes and they bloom all by themselves. So the impeded stream, the water that has to tumble over rocks and logs and leap down steepness, that impeded stream, that's the stream that sings, that makes that beautiful um, stream sound. It's not the river or stream that flows silently through the flatlands. So maybe your life outside of here, inside of here, your inside and outside become one life of mindfulness practice is very flat and smooth. But most of us face rocks and fallen branches and prickly cactus and steepness, and when we do, to remember that this is all the shape, the contour of the Dharma, this is actually our way, the colors of the desert, they are all the voice and um, truth of what we see when we're a little bit mindful about ourselves, We're really in service of this aliveness, this sense of presence that doesn't depend on what kind of condition we're in. Right now, uh, my mom is sick and that's why I went home just to check on her and she's better and I think... I think coming home to check on her also made her better, made her feel better. But then again, maybe she went to town and got a coffee. I don't know. But um, she definitely is better. But that no matter how sick she is, she's alive and she's present. And I'm alive and you're alive. And that aliveness is our practice when we talk about mindfulness and metta, really all we're talking about is being able to be with an experience and know it and see it and show up for it. The method of being mindful is inclining our intention, deliberately bringing attention to experience. But the state of being mindful is this openness and Aliveness. And clear seeing, oh, yes, I'm here. I don't need to be fooled or deceived by any other moment or by, by the idea that any other place is where I need to be or where I ought to be or where I should be or where the truth maybe is. No, it's here. Right, right Here. We can let go of the more, the better, the different, um, and just be with this brightness, this presence, um, only go straight 10,000 years nonstop. This is from Mary Oliver. This is her expression of her mindfulness. She says, look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm ever going to have to be alive and know it. See, that's it, the mindfulness, to be alive and know it. Sometimes in late summer I won't touch anything, not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't name the birds or the trees. I won't whisper my own name. One morning the fox came down the hill glittering and confident and didn't see me and I thought so this is the world I'm not in it it's beautiful now what does she mean by that I'm not in it she is in it, she's standing there but what she's talking about is that state when we take that backward step into receptivity, when we're not the eye that wants to see a fox, doesn't usually get to. The eye that wants to understand the Dharma and get enlightened is not the eye that is ever going to have that experience. The eye that goes out determined to find the desert tortoise usually doesn't see it. Or a friend of mine said um, that he had found a lot of turquoise uh, stones out here. So I went out, well, if he can find turquoise stones, I can too. But I didn't find even one. And when she says sometimes I won't touch anything, just that sense of things are so perfect. I don't need to adjust them one tiny bit. Mindfulness is a non-interfering presence, allowing it to be so in this great openness, willingness of mind and heart. Easy to say when it's blackberries brimming in the thicket or cacti blooming in the spring. A little harder to say when we've actually run into one and it hurts. Hurts. And there is something powerful about naming what's happening, sometimes making a light note of it. When we name our demons, remember the story of Rumpelstiltskin? Do you remember she was supposed to spin all this straw into gold? I think it was either to save her father's life or avoid marrying some grizzled old king, and she was really young. I don't remember exactly. You might remember. But in any case, she said she could spin straw into gold and then was put into a room with bales and bales of straw and a spinning wheel. And she didn't know how to do it. And then Rumpelstiltskin arrives and says... I'll do it for you on one condition. You have to give me your firstborn or yourself or some completely awful condition. Anyway, he said, unless you can guess my name. And finally, through the goodness of some creature, because it was such a strange name, she's told the name. And she's able to name, name him. And do remember, of course, he gets so frustrated, he just disappears through the floor and vanishes. So sometimes it helps to name just a light mental note to name what we're seeing. But we also know that stillness that she's talking about where we don't we don't want to call out to ourselves or even whisper our own name. So, sometimes to just be so, so still, and other times to call ourselves into presence and just be here. So, I'm going to close with a poem called In the World by Bridget Lowry. In the strange early morning half light, we sit. In the cloudiness of our questioning, we sit. In our madness and our clarity, we sit. In the midst of too much to do, we sit. In the warm arms of our shared sorrow, we sit. In community and in loneliness, we sit. In sweet exhaustion, we sit. In the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. Here with the singing of coyotes we sit here with the sound of the hummingbirds and the insects here with the rippling of the breezes and the desert grasses here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us. Us in the sound and the sound in us. Us in the world and the world in us. We sit. So let's just sit for a minute.